Hey folks, Randy Newberg here with another episode of Hunt Talk Radio. Uh, I'm here in my home in Bozeman, Montana with my special guest. Uh, any of you who had your hunting partner come home for a week, uh, like I did, my son Matthew's here, celebrating his 26th birthday today. Happy birthday, Matthew. Thanks. And uh, he's home visiting us for a week, and I just got back from Alaska uh, from a black bear hunt and I head to the NRA show in Louisville, Kentucky tomorrow. So I told him, let's sit down and crank out a podcast. And he said, yeah, let's do that. So we got all kinds of things we're going to talk about here. Uh, we're done with the political stuff. I appreciate you guys listening in for the two podcasts that we did on political topics. Um, I know some of you said, well, gosh, I, I don't live in Montana, so it's not that appealing to me, and I get that, um, but you all know that I use my platforms in a pretty heavy political way, and I hope that all of you who have platforms or that you listen to other platforms, I hope you will encourage them to get involved in the politics of whatever it is, uh, public land issues, hunting issues, I mean... Right now, I look at uh, Corey Jacobson and Ryan Hatfield and those guys over in Idaho, and they're fighting a big battle right now with the politics of their governor not reappointing two very hunter-friendly commissioners to the Fish and Wildlife uh, Board, Fish and Game Board over there, commission. And those guys both have big platforms, and it's encouraging to see Corey and Ryan use those platforms to cry, try create change for the benefit of their audience and for hunters. So uh, I'm hoping that all of us in the hunting world, uh, when we have these kind of platforms, it comes to me, at least to me anyhow, comes with the responsibility of of uh, being involved and doing something about it. So anyhow, Matthew, what do you got for an outline here? Am I going to have to tell Alaska bear hunting stories or did you grab a bunch of stuff off Hunt Talk and get a bunch of member questions? I think we have... A bit off hunt talk to go over today but first you want to talk about some of your sponsors of the podcast here yeah i think we'll get that out of the way right away um the it, and i'm, I'm going to try connect this later on in the podcast but uh there's two of these sponsors who are going to be really important to what i do when i start doing my scouting this summer what i call e-scouting uh, from my desk and actually I've started a thread out on hunt talk our forum just yesterday and said hey guys I drew this really cool uh, tag that I did not expect to draw in Utah and I've never been there uh, you guys want me to start a thread and show how I go about e-scouting or desk scouting uh, from home having never set foot there and two products that sponsor this podcast that I use heavily in that effort uh, are the Go Hunt Insider and Onyx Map System. So uh, all of you know that uh, GoHunt.com, go there, and if you click on their Insider, uh, they have a special promo code for you guys who listen to our platforms. It's Hunt Talk, H-U-N-T-T-A-L-K. And if you go and click on, on the Insider and type in the, the promo code hunt talk. You're going to get a free Gerber, uh, scalpel blade knife, the, the vital it's the knife that we use. And, uh, the, if you 
out on our YouTube channel, uh, Randy Newberg Hunter, we've been doing this series called Elk Talk, uh, showing people how to apply for tags. And now that we're through the tag applications, now we're talking a lot about tactics and finding elk. But when we were doing the, the segments about uh, how to apply for tags, the resource that I use is the Go Hunt Insider. So I, I don't say that for any reason other than it's some of the best money you're going to spend. If you, if you go out to gohunt.com, they have a bunch of great free articles and stuff out there. And then if you subscribe to the, to the higher level service, it's worth every penny of it. Um, and then the other sponsor is the Onyx maps guys. Uh, a lot of you knew them as hunting GPS maps.com. Um, same company. They make the, the new hunt app, uh, it, it, they just rolled it out, I think, in February or March. And I think it, if you go out there and look, it's all about hunt smarter. And it's putting everything in the power of your hand. It's All of your information can be stored on the cloud, can be retrieved from there, retrieved from anywhere. And all of the services that we used to rely upon, like these little microchips for our GPSs and stuff, uh, you get all that and a whole lot more. Um, it's... It is invaluable to me because I hunt a lot of areas that have public-private interfaces. And the Onyx map system lets me know where those are, lets me get the aerial views, the surface ownership views. The, I can go in, import, export, do everything I need to do with it. And uh, I know they have a promo code for us there. Um, what is it, Matthew? It's Randy16, I think? Randy16, yep. Yeah, and so if you go to the uh, Onyx Maps website and you want to get the new uh hunt app if you use promo code randy r-a-n-d-y 16 i think it's 20 percent that they give off uh for you just using that promo code so go do that also and then the the last sponsor of this podcast you heard uh two podcasts ago we had damon bungard from uh, uh orion coolers on the podcast great guy uh, we just took a bunch of those Orion coolers to Alaska last week. We lived out of them for a week, me and two camera guys. And everybody who sees those coolers is like, whoa, not only are they these funky colors, which grabs your attention at first, but they are so stout. They are so durable. And when you start using them, you're like, holy cow, that's what this is for. Why didn't I think of that? Why, why didn't the other cooler companies think of that? So all I can tell you is go to oriancoolers.com um, and check them out. They are the best premium cooler that's out there. And uh, I've been using them now for over a year. And they're as good as anything I've ever found. And uh, I guess with that, Matthew, we're, uh, we got the, the formalities out of the way. Where, where we want to start with this thing? All right. Well, I'm kind of the guy that does a lot of the behind the scenes, digital YouTube, Facebook type stuff. And so I think it's probably a good idea for us to give everyone a little bit of a look into what we've been doing and what we have laid out for the future. Um, and then going off of that, we also have some, some news that came off of the internet of some tours in Yellowstone <laughs> that we should probably talk about. Um, can, can we get into that one first? Yeah, let's go for it. Uh, so I get off the plane from Alaska and all of you have, any of you who are in the outdoor world, 
read the same thing. I, I live outside of Yellowstone Park here about 80 miles away. And so every summer we get inundated with people who come to Yellowstone and do stuff that those of us who understand the natural world, we just shake our head. You know, oh, earlier this year, I think like almost a month ago, some couple from Taiwan, I think it was, had their daughter go and stand next to a bison bull to get her picture taken and she got gored and I mean, it, it happens every year. Well, the item that you're referring to, Matthew, is this the, the one about the French Canadian couple who put the bison calf in, in the back of their SUV? Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I get that they're concerned about wildlife and I, I guess I appreciate that, that, that people are concerned about wildlife, but what it means to me or how it, how it kind of shakes out for me is the rest of the world did not grow up in the natural world, I guess, with a close connection to the natural world. Like I did. I, and I mean, Matthew, you grew up here in, in Montana, so it's, you know, for you, it's kind of a bit of the same. You shake your head and say, what the hell is somebody thinking? And I, I don't know what, you know, those of you who read it are probably laughing also, but for me, it also is, is evidence about how much we really are the minority in society today. Where you've went to college, Matthew, you went to college in New York, and now you're getting your master's in on the East Coast still. You you probably realize it more than I do. Yeah. So one of the things that really struck me about this is um, this actually was trending on Facebook, and I had a bunch of friends from North Carolina that started posting about this, and None of them had actually been to Yellowstone, so it was a little bit of a surprise to see this show up as as often as it did on my Facebook. And so it's it's really one of those things where it's kind of a, a far-reaching thing, and it gets into the, the digital realm of, hey, people are going and experiencing the outdoors, but they've not- seen photos on the Internet, and they may not know exactly how to go and interact with the outdoors. Right, I- what we take for granted of you would never walk up to a new mother bison and say, I'm going to take your calf. I mean, all of us know that's a good way to get killed. <laughs> yep. But so those on your newsfeed, you think they understood the gravity of, of I, the danger this person put themselves in? Well, I, I think it's important to give a little background for the, the people who didn't actually see the article The the couple took the bison calf and put it in their SUV because they thought it, it looked cold. Cold, yeah. <laughs> um, and, I mean, maybe maybe it looked cold, but still, what's the Forest Service going to do about it? Put a bison blanket on it or something? But yeah. um, the follow-up to this is that the calf wound up having to be euthanized because the mother rejected it right. and it became a little too too chummy with the other tourists in the park. Um, and so that was the other part that caught a lot of attention on the internet was the euthanization. Right. And it's, there, 
the responses that I saw range from, oh, yeah, the, the tourists were stupid to, oh, why would they do that to this poor animal? Yeah. And that, again, really speaks to the kind of disconnect between what what needs to happen in order to keep the park animals healthy and uh, going strong and what needs to happen to make sure the tourists are safe and um, all sorts of different aspects that play into this. Yeah, it's... To me, though, it just continues, and I get these reminders all the time. Uh, a lot of them are news feeds. Uh, and all of you in outside of the world here by Yellowstone don't get all of these news feeds probably, but some of the crazy stuff that, that we hear about, it just, you know, your first response is, what an idiot. You know, like you said, Matthew, what, what are they going to do, get a bison blanket for it? <laughs> I mean, bison calves have been surviving uh, spring in montana for a long time yeah for since since long before uh, the, the europeans showed up here and uh but yet i i think a lot of people in my in my generation i'm 51 you're 26 my generation a lot of them experienced or got their information about the wild world the natural world through tv is it safe to say your generation is getting that through social media and other stuff? And, and that creates this really, like, I think you said disconnected. Yeah. So I, I think that the internet is typically a very good resource. And for the people who really want to go and learn about things, I think that they, it creates a very good environment for them to learn things. I think it's the people who fail to really investigate what they're doing that are the ones that cause problems like maybe they see a photo of all the wildlife on instagram or facebook or something and they say oh i want to go there and they don't realize the implications of if i go there that means i probably shouldn't go pet the grizzly bears yeah and that's it's it's an example of the information's out there but maybe it's not reaching the people in the the level that it should do, do you think they have any context by which to associate what they see versus what reality is? I mean, I I don't know. It's There are definitely some people who I think are very intelligent that are lacking in some of the common sense divisions. Mm -hmm. And to them, they might just assume, oh, it's a park. It's very highly organized. All of these animals must be domesticated, and therefore they're not dangerous. When in reality, that's not even close to the truth. Yeah. Um, I guess when we think about, okay, that's the level of connection and understanding these people have to the natural world, the natural cycles, the, the life and death that happens in the natural world. They are also the people who represent the majority of Americans mm -hmm. or the majority of the world. Right. Which... It is a further eye opener for me that as I'm trying to communicate a message in the hunting world, I'm talking to a very small part of the world who I can relate to without a lot of depth and detail because they have the life of context to us to understand it. But they're a small sliver of the pie. I mean, if your exposure to wildlife is going to a park and feeding the birds or watching a squirrel bury a nut or something if you just assume all wildlife is that tame you're probably right. going to wind up in some trouble if you go to right 
Yellowstone or in the backwoods of Montana. Right. And and I I think one thing about abundance of wildlife in our country, you know, we went from this, there is none, or it was scarce, to the great recovery we all talk about and we should be so proud about, which we are. But now, you know, earlier today, there was the discussion about suburban Washington, D.C. whitetails laying in people's yards. That is not a natural situation in a natural world. So it, I, I don't think it's that out of reality for the person from Washington, D.C. who drives through suburban wherever it is and sees deer laying next to someone's lilacs and thinks that's a natural condition because that's what they've seen all their life. Mm-hmm. I mean, in a way, it's become the natural condition. Like if, right. if humankind is really just having that much of an impact on the environment, then if the animals are adapting to it, then, hey, that's that's the new status of nature. <laughs> I, I think so. you're right. And that's <laughs> the context by which a lot of people look at this. So they think, all right, well, you know, the white-tailed deer living in the hedge behind the house here, they aren't afraid of me. And, you know, I've went and petted, petted their fawn before maybe or whatever it might be. Or they've had to kick it away because it tried to come and eat the the tomato plant that they put out in the spring or whatever, you know, little garden they tried to grow. When they come to a place like Yellowstone or and and I don't Yellowstone's really not that wild of a place. I mean it is, but it isn't. Yellowstone's as domesticated of wild country as you're gonna find just because you got what, six or seven million tourists a year going there. But I don't know. I guess it shouldn't surprise me when you have the example we're talking about with Washington, D.C. suburbanite deer giving people a context of what the natural world is that's really not that natural. I mean, the bison are so fluffy, they can't be dangerous, can they? (laughs) Uh, Well, and I think that is another thing. Uh, You know, bison in America, if we want to just talk about that for a minute, they're true d- uh, genetic strain, pure strain bison is very rare in the United States. We have them in Yellowstone, have them in the Henry's Mountains in Utah, now in the Book Cliffs in Utah, um, some of the Alaska herds and some of the Canadian herds. The rest of the bison the world see are a mix of cattle and bison. And they're standing behind fences. The majority of bison in this world are highly domesticated. So I guess it's not that unusual if you're a tourist and you come to Yellowstone, you drove, you know, across South Dakota or wherever and you saw bison out in the, you know, all huddled up in the corner of a pasture. And so you think, well, what the heck? I petted a horse before. I'll go and rub the ears on this bison. Maybe, Maybe none of these really should be that unexpected because of how we've built our interaction with what used to be wild animals. I don't know. I mean, part of it is just the human nature of putting themselves in what they perceive as the same amount of risk. I think it's, uh, what's it called? Risk homeostasis, where as you make people feel more protected, they are more willing to take on additional risk. 
and so in some in some fashions having Yellowstone be a place that's highly regulated and say you should only walk here you should only do this you should only do that makes people feel safe and kind of lulls them into this false sense of security that oh I can go pet the bison I can go you know take a selfie with this black bear cub <laughs> like yeah. there's so, a lot going on what was that called the risk what uh, I think it's called risk homeostasis. It's the idea that as a human species, we like to put ourselves in the same amount of perceived risk at any given point in time. With perceived risk being far different than actual than risk. Than actual risk. And so there's a, a number of studies with this. Um, there's a theory out there that if we took football players and we made them not wear helmets, they would fear for their own safety and they would not hit as hard and therefore there would be fewer injuries in the NFL. Hmm. Um, I believe there were also studies done where when they first mandated seatbelts in cars or enforced driving laws in car or seatbelt laws in various states, the severity of automobile accidents went down, but the number of injuries to bike riders actually went up. <laughs> because people felt safer because they were wearing seat belts and therefore they were driving less, less safe and huh. other drivers weren't really being affected by this because cars were getting safer and they were wearing seat belts but just because a person in a car is wearing a seat belt doesn't make the bike rider that they run into any safer right. and so um it's some interesting interactions with this and i think part of that might be if yellowstone said oh this is just the, the wild, untamed world, people might be a little more careful about it. Than... So if they had big flashing signs, caution, these bison will kill you, almost scaring them? I I mean, as long as they didn't make it too gimmicky, as long as people could believe that it was a real threat, yeah. yeah. it's You you don't want to paint the bison as just this majestic animal that isn't, I mean, it is majestic, but you don't, right. you want to recognize that it is a real risk to people. And you can't just make it be this fluffy little cuddly teddy bear. Yeah. So is the fact that we now have a society, and I always complain about this because when I grew up, there weren't warnings on anything. I mean, we were allowed to eat lead paint and <laughs> all kinds of things. As our society got to the point now that the default is there is no danger if we're not told about it. Whereas when I was growing up, the default always was, hey, anything could be dangerous because you just didn't know and there weren't warnings on everything. I mean, that's I, I can't really speak to that, but that seems like a reasonable theory to me that the mindset has shifted from just assuming everything was dangerous to assuming everything was safe unless told otherwise. Right. Um, and that being said, there are definitely warning signs in Yellowstone. Yeah. But I, I think the overriding feeling of a lot of tourists is, oh, they're they're just blowing this out of proportion, or yeah. they're not really that dangerous, or things like that. Right. I mean, there's a part of me that wishes, and, and I know this is going into some tangents about Yellowstone, but it's mostly trying to give some perspective and context to the interaction of how we as hunters, anglers, people who live and experience the natural world in the way we do, I'm trying to draw the contrast between that and how what I'll call the rest of society interacts with wild places. And there's a part of me that wishes Yellowstone had no warning signs. 
that it was kind of a, a venture at your own risk. Because I think people would be more careful. I think I, they would. I mean, every year Yellowstone has stories of people falling off the cliff or falling through the, the geysers. Right, or walking getting, out on the hot pots and getting, busting through and getting scalded. And getting mauled by bears, getting right. run into or run over by bison, just... You yeah. name it, it's happened. Right. And so now it's almost like the Yellowstone experience is there. It's supposed to be a no risk experience. We're supposed to be able to come here, drive around in our cars, pet all the wildlife, do stupid things. But yet the Park Service owes us the sanitization, if you want to call it that, of the experience such that we can do stupid things and not be accountable for the risk we impose on ourselves. I mean, yeah, but at the same time, you need to strike a balance between having it safe enough that you can actually get people to go and experience the outdoors, like experience the national park. Cause that's kind of the point is to have it available for people to go see Yeah, and making sure that people know that this is actually still dangerous to go do. Yeah. And so you, you probably can't just throw all the safety precautions away and let people to their own devices. You probably need to have something there, but Maybe we've provided the feeling that Yellowstone, for example, is safer than it actually is. Yeah. Um, and I don't mean to make this sound like the Park Service or anyone is not doing their jobs. I think they are. It's just um, how it's been presented as or how some people will assume it's just this safe, cuddly environment is just not true. <laughs> yeah. Well, and part of what what kind of worries me is national geographic their current issue is all about yellowstone park and i've read it cover to cover there's a couple pieces in there i i'm in it a couple other hunters i know are quoted and and featured in it and it's there's times where it makes it sound way too domestic it it's taking a really cool wild place and I get that they're trying to engage people. They're trying to find that balance of where do you, where do you make this feel uh, intriguing to someone to come and see it and experience it versus explaining the raw reality of what it is. I, I mean, at the same time, I feel like the target demographic of National Geographic are people who <laughs> actually participate in the outdoors and like the travel. And so yeah. it might be okay for them, but if they're if they were targeting people who grew up in the middle of, I don't know, it's New York city or something. Yeah. And I don't know, like New York city definitely has some rough spots, but it's different. It's a different, it's a different, different, different kind danger. of danger than yeah. being in the middle of the wilderness. And so if they were targeting people who typically just had zero interaction with the outdoors, yeah, that could be a problem. But I think their target, audience given what it is it's probably fine that they've done this yeah well i'm going to take this into the next step we're going to talk about this could take a long time to talk about all these things matthew i my mind spins when we start talking about grizzly bears and yellowstone and everything else so what do they do with we always read about the bear that becomes habituated in yellowstone because some tourists fed them or left, didn't practice proper food storage, or whatever. And we have a saying out here that a fed, de fed bear is a dead bear. 
just because when grizzly bears get habituated to human activity, dog food, camp food, garbage dumps, they become problems. Um, and so a lot of times they get taken out of the population. But in Yellowstone, they don't do that. They take the problem bears and they haul them to the far reaches of some of the areas outside, outside of the park. Places a lot of us like to hunt. So they take a bear that is a problem in Mammoth Hot Springs or in West Yellowstone or Old Faithful, one of those areas, and they haul it. I'm just going to use an example. They relocate it uh, in the Taylor's Fork drainage or Sage Creek or somewhere northwest of the park. Well, those are the areas, and, and the people relocating these bears who who adopted this policy know that those places they're relocating those bears in the fall have some of the highest concentration of elk hunting activity out there. So I'm sitting there thinking, all right, so whoever's adopting this policy says, well, these elk hunters are a bunch of badasses. They can handle these habituated problem bears. We, we, Someone's making the determination, whether consciously or subconsciously, that we don't want the Yellowstone Park visitor to be at risk of this bear. We'd rather have an elk hunter at risk of this bear. Am I oversimplifying? Uh, I mean, you might be, but the world is full of oversimplification, <laughs> so I think it's fine. Um, but, I mean, if you're not putting it there where are you going to put it like right. are you going to put it in the middle of the population center are you going to nope. put it in the middle of right. um a popular trail that people like to take their dogs nope. are you gonna <laughs> right i mean there's there are probably no good places to put it and so one that typically is only accessed by people who are already going into the far backwoods is probably the one that poses the least damage to society i would argue right my theory is that bear, and maybe I shouldn't say my theory, one one theory you could argue is that bear is going to be removed from the population anyhow because he or she is now so habituated, they're going to go and find campsites, they're going to go find cabins, they're going to go find people's homes out in the woods, and that, that's where they, they've now become habituated. For me, I wish they would remove that bear from the population in the park and make an example of it and say, look, people, this is what you've done. You've resulted in the death of this grizzly bear. Your stupid behavior, your lack of respect for what this bear needs to survive to be wild, the blood's on your hands. I mean, you could do that, but... I think you're going to have pretty severe backlash from people who say, no, it's not our fault. It's your fault. <laughs> like well, you, you didn't need to euthanize this bear. You, you know, we can just keep doing things the way we think they should be done. And we think that, you know, the bear, it's fine that the bear is habituated to people. And I think a lot of the problem people are just not going to care. Yeah. So they're, they're going to blame someone else for, the result of their activities. Yeah. It, it, and so that gets me to some of these points we'll talk about with grizzly bear delisting and stuff is, you know, one of, one of the questions that has been thrown out before is, well, why don't we let hunters 
go and shoot these problem bears and provide a form of hunting. Well, I I was on a the governor's grizzly bear round table for three years that came up with the current conservation strategy. We work with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to come up with what's now the management plan that's going to be going forward when bears get delisted, which looks like will happen in the next few, well, I'd say six to eight months. Um, but then it'll be in court for <laughs> maybe six ba- to eight Basically decades. forever. Yeah. Um, but one of the discussions that always came up was, well, maybe that, maybe these problem bears represent hunting opportunity. And I've always advocated, you know what? The worst thing for the image of hunting is to have a game warden or a biologist say, hey, we got this problem bear. He's in the dumpsters down here in Cody, Wyoming or Jackson or Big Sky, Montana. We pulled your name from the list. You want to come and shoot him as he climbs out of the dumpster tonight? And by that point, somebody's already given him a name and has posted 800 photos to social media and then... Right. You have the, the Cecil the Lion thing all over again. Right. And and then it becomes the black eye of hunters. Like, we're the problem. My response was, no. Whoever that person was who habituated that bear, take them over there and make them watch you shoot that bear. So they understand that if you don't follow these protocols that all the rest of us follow to try keep bears on the landscape, to try keep their numbers where they should be, if you don't want to follow that, you're the one responsible for that bear dying. Not me, not the hunter. I don't want hunters to be on mop-up duty for all the knuckleheads who can't follow bear protocols. And there, so I, I uh, go ahead. Oh no, I was just going to say there was wasn't there a lady a few years back who built a cage in her backyard and was feeding bears through it or something and then got herself killed when one of the bears turned on her? Uh, yeah, was, was, were those bears or were... I'm pretty sure it was bears. It might be. Yeah, she had kind of her... No, these weren't grizzly bears. Though. I, I don't think they were grizzlies. Yeah. But... But yeah. My, my point was the same kind of thing is going on in Yellowstone. I mean, there's signs everywhere. Do not feed the bears. Do not this. Do not that. And what do people do? They feed them. Pretty soon yeah. these bears... A grizzly bear is four to 600 pounds of absolute claws teeth badass attitude and if you think you're going to habituate that to human activity and someone's not going to get hurt eventually you're kidding yourself i mean last year a retired i think he was a retired park service employee got killed in yellowstone by a bear and man what a big stink what a big blow up about the fact that they decided to dispatch that bear to kill that bear that it had killed this person and everyone's like almost like oh well he deserved it or he wasn't doing this and i don't know all the facts behind it but i would bet any money that bear probably had a lot of human contact that some of that human contact probably contributed to this bear's death and that guy's death based on ignorant whether you want to call it ignorant uninformed whatever term of people who think that's how you interact with the natural world and so i mean what let's take it the next step further so in september and october the largest number of human caused bear deaths is because of elk hunters protecting their body 
their lives. Sometimes it's with gut piles. Sometimes it's just a bad encounter, wrong place, wrong time. Um, but a lot of these bears are the young bears, the problem bears that have been relocated in, into some of these areas. So in effect, the hunter gets the blame for disposing of or killing a bear in self-defense that was a bear that got trained by some other person to be a problem. And I, I just, that, that chaps my hide when, when that happens. And so long way of saying, I really wish that they would dispose of those bears in Yellowstone and explain, look, we've killed bear number 222 because tourists habituated that bear. Mm -hmm. And if there's going to be this Cecil the Lion social media screaming and yelling match, fine. You guys have this fight over whether you should dispatch that bear or not. But at least then we can't argue about who's to blame. Yeah. And if it's one of those things where they have made it blatantly clear that, hey, this is the cause of this this is why we have to do this um and i think the more public they make it the the more it will really sink into people that hey maybe we shouldn't do this maybe we shouldn't feed the bears um but until that time that people actually stop doing that which i don't think it's <laughs> going to happen anytime soon not in our lives um i i think we're still going to have these problem bears and right might, might have to go into other other ways to deal with them right and and maybe i'm having a pipe dream here because i do believe that the new american way is that no one's got to be accountable for their actions so maybe i'm i'm foolish in thinking that we'd hold tourists accountable for the death of the bear rather than some abstract disconnection that they don't have to be accountable for but that that's a, a tangent about grizzly bears we can really get into a lot on grizzly bears i think it was the uh podcast number 17 i think it was with arnie dude if you go back and listen to that arnie was the endangered species biologist slash coordinator for montana fish wildlife and parks for decades before he retired last year uh, and we got into the discussion about grizzly bears and that was last summer. And since then, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has started holding public hearings in April. They had one in uh, Cody, one in Bozeman, uh, because the Fish and Wildlife Service is getting ready to issue the new ruling. I think they issued a delisting ruling in 07, got litigated immediately. They solved all that. I think, I think the next delisting ruling they issued was... 2010 or 11 that got litigated immediately they've solved all those issues so they're getting ready to issue another uh delisting ruling the u.s fish and wildlife service the best bear biologists in the world have concluded that the yellowstone subpopulation they call them a dps distinct population segment one of five dps's in the lower 48 has reached the point where it is no longer threatened all the habitat criteria have been met. All of the safety nets are in place. Anything you can think about to protect grizzly bears, we've done all that we practically can do. And it's been a, a long, long process. Uh, I told you I started, I was on that governor's grizzly bear roundtable uh, 
There were five from Montana, five from Wyoming, and five from uh, Idaho. And the 15 of us worked with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service to come up with how do we craft a plan to manage these bears once they're delisted. And you really get to understand how smart these bear biologists are. They have it dialed in. They have it figured out. Um, and so I trust them. When they say that we can delist these bears, I'm, I believe that they're not threatened. My worry is a lot of hunters I talk to, they think that this whole delisting process was the end goal was to hunt grizzly bears. And I'm a hunter and I advocated for state management control that includes hunting as part of this federal plan. But I just want people to understand that this, the Endangered Species Act is not about getting to hunt grizzly bears. That might be a byproduct, but whether the states decide to have hunting seasons or not have hunting seasons is really not what the goal of the Endangered Species Act is. That goal is to make sure the species is no longer threatened. And uh, I know a lot of guys, they're just looking at it saying, hey, I, I don't, <laughs> from my perspective, it's all about I want to go hunt a grizzly bear. Um, but to put safety nets in there, and Matthew you brought up the Cecil the lion thing, um, think about this. What's the bear number 399, I think, is the one that lives down in Grand Teton National Park, moves back and forth, and has been the subject of all kinds of documentaries and books. And Imagine if somebody was issued a tag in Wyoming and bear 399 and her cub her cubs came walking out of the park and some hunter shot that bear. That would blow up pretty bad. I think <laughs> that, that would make Cecil the lion look like a tea party. I mean, think about the places you've lived that have been pretty urban and since you've been doing your college stuff, imagine what that would, how that would fly. Yeah, that that would not go over terribly well. No, and so I'm not saying that we we don't hunt them. What I'm saying is, and I'm trying to put this in the context of, all right, let's think about we have a drawing for these grizzly tags. And we're going to get to hunt so few of them. I, I I should say this before I even get into the next my point I was going to make is if you go and read the conservation strategy, there are safety nets all over the place. There's a hard population number that if we get below that, the feds are coming in and taking over. We never want to get there. As hard as we've fought and as much as we've invested in getting bears to this point, we do not want the federal government to come in and take them over take over management control again. There's also mortality, human cause mortality quotas. In other words, if the human cause mortality, and that means whether it's, you know, they have to remove a bear because it's a dump bear, it became habituated, it got, or it got run over by a car, or it got hit by a train. Anything that is a human cause death counts towards this quota of allowed human cause mortality. So there's a quota for the entire population and there's a quota as a percentage of the total female population. So 2015 was was one of the highest human-caused uh, totals of human-caused deaths ever in the park 
part of that is just <laughs> there's going to be that many bears. So the more bears you have, the more human-caused interactions going to result in, in deaths. Well, that quote, that number of deaths was so high that I'm, I'd have to run through the formula, but I think that if, if right now we had that level of human-caused deaths and the states had control, I think the way the plans are written, there would not be any allowed hunting in, in the following year. So point of me saying that is if guys think that there's going to be this big bunch of grizzly tags that you're going to go out and hunt them, hit the reset button because you <laughs> there's just not going to be a lot of opportunity. It, it's that simple. So if this is not about hunting them, then what's it really about? State control versus federal control or what? That's a huge part of it. Um, I mean, it, you, you bring up a really good point, Matthew, because the people who are litigating this issue and don't want delisting, uh, there's a former biologist. He's written a lot of peer reviewed science on grizzly bears, but he left the scientific community and he's now become an advocate against delisting. And if you think about science, they take this oath of I'm an objective researcher. I'm an objective scientist. I'm not here to advocate for a position one way or the other. I'm here to do my research and tell you the facts. So this person, when he left an agency and became an advocate, to me it's hard to say he's now an objective scientist. But the point being, he is quoted in, I think it was NPR or Montana Public Radio, in an interview saying that, we cannot have delisting of grizzly bears until we reform the state model, state-based model of wildlife management. And he goes on to say that the reason we can't let grizzly bears be delisted is grizzly bears represent the greatest opportunity to reform the state-based model of wildlife management. Anyone who's ever studied wildlife law in this country knows Wildlife is held in trust by the states, not by the federal government, but by the states. That's why the laws here in Montana are different than the laws in Idaho, different than the laws in Colorado. It's a state model. It always has been, always will be. So you bring up the point. What, what's the motivation? Well, a lot of these groups, and if you read like I have, and, and I've been doing seminars on this in the last six months, the the principles of conservation versus the principles of environmentalism, all the scholars will tell you that modern-day conservation, and they usually talk about that being the post-Roosevelt era, and modern-day environmentalism, which they usually talk about as the post-World War II era, have two different theories on that. Conservation has the theory that state-based models is how we manage wildlife. The environmental principle is no we have federal oversight so that's that's a very good point of of what's relevant to this is we we not only we, we have so many competing differences uh, i don't know if competing is the right word but so many different perspectives of how we look at this depending on whether we subscribe to model a or model b conservation versus environmentalism or preservationism versus something else um but yeah you're you're right the they're they're grizzly bears represent 
one of the critical arguments about where we're going to go with the future of wildlife management in this country. I mean, it, it seems like it's right in the middle of the intersection between the federal control and the state control. So you've got mm-hmm. both groups arguing that one way is better and there's not really a whole lot of, you know, consensus on one way or the other. Like the, the ESA in general seems like it's one extremely, I uh, uh, can't think of the right word. It's just a very complicated piece of legislation to, to really right. consolidate with the current rules. It, it is. And who's going to decide? A judge that is probably sympathetic to federal oversight because it's going to go to a federal court. You know, we, we can see the pattern. We've seen it with wolves when Wyoming, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Michigan lost man- state management control. They took it to a judge in, I think, the D.C. Circuit, federal uh, circuit court, overruled and said, no, you don't get state control. And so I, you think about, and I don't mean to pick on the attorneys of the world, but us CPAs are really good at picking a, on attorneys. So I'm going to because to be a judge, you need to be an attorney. But if you think about this, what what most of the law students you knew, did they have undergraduate degrees in wildlife biology? Uh, no. <laughs> they, they English, it history. Was, it was political science, yeah. that sort of stuff. Right. Yeah. So they then, and, and even the older judges of, you know, that are, have worked their way up the bench to higher level courts, they had the same backgrounds. They had poli-sci majors, history majors, you know, whatever, across the board, but heavily towards the non-sciences. And then they get a law degree. How does that qualify them? It, it qualifies them to interpret law. Law in itself is does not is not the filter by which wildlife projection of of how a wildlife species is going to do projection of the planning and all the considerations all the modeling all the variables they are not prepared and qualified to make that judgment. I mean the the whole theory behind it is you have the experts who come in and plead their case one way or the other, right? And two experts can look at the same set of facts and come to Completely opposing conclusions. Right. And so these groups know where those judges reside. And that's where those cases get litigated. But anyhow, boy, we're getting way out here in the weeds on on some of this stuff. And I was trying to make a point, getting ready to make a point. And I lost what the hell it was. Uh, Probably delisting's not about hunting somewhere in that. Yeah, I was somewhere in that. But now, and I got to the point of, you know, I don't want people to expect that there's going to be a ton of hunting because there's not. And, uh, oh, well, maybe, maybe it'll come to me later in the podcast. I still think I got Alaska jet lag or something. I got black bears on the brain. Now. Yeah. Well, this, this seems like a good time for you to talk about some of the uh, stuff that we have planned for the digital marketing strategy. Um, you want to tell them about the big giveaway that you're planning in the upcoming months? Yeah. Um, and since you're the digital, let, let, let's back up a second. I think it was podcast number eight. You and Troy and Lauren were on that podcast. Uh, I think it was six. Six. Actually. Okay. So that, if you go back and listen to that, you'll get a little bit of insight about how this gig started. Well, 
if anyone ever asks, I always blame Matthew for me getting into this business to start with. So it's interesting now that he's got his computer engineering degree. He's always been kind of my technology uh, crutch. I I have to call him and ask him where the power button is on my new cell phone and stuff like that. But uh, so what I get to be the front of this operation behind the scenes is my wife handling all the administrative affairs. We have a group of investors who support us and help us in so many ways. Uh, but on the technology and uh, what would I maybe generation opening an old gray haired guy like me opening his eyes to the trends and media consumption of, of a 25 year younger generation. That's, that's been a big part of your role, Matthew. Yeah. So I, I mean, I'm 26, as we mentioned before, I just turned 26 today. Yeah. Happy Um, birthday. (laughs) Thanks. And so this has really been one of the things that I've hoped that the TV show could do for a long time. And as he can verify, I've been trying to push, hey, let's do digital, let's do YouTube, let's try to get into all this stuff pretty much since this first started. Right. And now with there the increasing number of people who are cable cutters or yep. what's the, the new word? Cord cutters. Cord cutters. There's there's another term they use for people who are not completely getting rid of cable, but just kind of shredding, I think cable snipping, something like that. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, um, where there's this huge growing market for content on the internet. And moreover, it's this want for high quality content on the internet. Right. Not just the guy with his little (laughs) handy camera or cell phone that makes you seasick when you watch it. Right. So the the hallmark of YouTube has always been anyone can do it. Anyone can upload videos and it's been very successful. The problem with that is that it's been hard to bring these sort of advertising revenue that TV garners into the digital space because they just assume that everything that's on YouTube is substantially lower quality. And so that's part of what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring the high quality content to the internet and still convince the sponsors and advertisers that this is just as valuable or perhaps even more valuable than your airtime is on TV. And so there, at least from my perspective, there's a few things that I really like about this. (laughs) I went to undergrad for engineering and so I really like data and how viewership numbers work for TV is Nielsen sends out surveys or has little boxes that record what people watch, but based on the number of TV shows and the number of channels and the truthfulness of respondents and the self-selection of respondents and the random or not randomness of which Nielsen selects people and all sorts of other things, there's a lot of error that goes on in the rating systems from Nielsen. And so one of the big advantages is that you have instantaneous extremely accurate feedback on all of the videos that get watched and all of the ad advertising. Yeah. So huge. (laughs) And that's, I mean, that's been one of the criticisms of TV is Nielsen's are this, they're, it's an art, not a science. And for a little more background to those of you who aren't in this world, um, Nielsen sends out, as Matthew said, these 
booklets. We have one right now, actually. Uh, I could, if my show, if our show was airing on Sportsman's Channel right now, I could watch my own show and bo- and uh, affect my own Nielsen ratings. Could watch your own show four times. And- <laughs> but but we only air from July through December. But um, the other thing is Nielsen's sampling is heavily weighted in A and B counties. A is uh, urban counties. B are suburban counties. C counties are suburban rural and D counties are considered rural counties. So the Nielsen sampling is heavily weighted towards A counties and A and B counties. So you think about just the nature of where our demographic is most heavily weighted in in outdoor sports, outdoor activities. It's heavily weighted towards C and D counties. So you take all that, then you take the small sample size and the small viewership of, you know, cable networks that, once you slice and dice it, you can get some wild, crazy variations in your Nielsen sampling. Yeah, the pretty much the only reason that the Nielsen ratings work is that everyone has kind of bought into the system that oh, we'll we'll kind of trust Nielsen, and they might be wrong sometimes, but overall, maybe they're okay. Kind of like weathermen. Yeah, um, Be- before radar. <laughs> so they're. Back in the 2000s, when Larry Page and Sergey Brin were first starting to get Google up and running, um, I mean, it was well established at this point, but they went to the CEO of Viacom and said, here's how our advertising model works. We want you to give us money, but only when people actually click on your advertisements. And in slightly more vulgar vulgar terms, he told them, you're (laughs) screwing with the magic. And um, it's it's really that way. This the entire media industry, I mean it's changing, but it's very heavily rooted in the ways of the past. Right. And a big portion of that is the Nielsen ratings. And it's right. taken pr- longer than I think it should to move into the digital realm. Right. So what Matthew's getting at here, and we're gonna talk about this you guys have heard us talk about our youtube channel so this fall we're we're going to be on sportsman channel july through december every sunday night uh here in montana it's going to be nine o'clock sunday nights and we're on mountain time so do your math from there um but we're going to be doing this and aaron on tv but all of our old episodes and a lot of our information how to kind of content is already up on facebook or or on uh, youtube and we are loading that every week we're loading more and more and more and more because in the in a half hour tv episode there's so much that you can't put up there i mean just time constraints so you try to tell a story that's compelling to get people to watch for that long a time but (laughs) you think about all the logistics, all applying for tags, how you do this, why you do that, how you know. Uh, I get, I don't know how many emails a month in a week. Uh, my wife Kim manages them and sorts them for me. So those of you who send me emails and it's takes me a long time to get back, I apologize. But uh, point of that being is our digital platforms are to try fill that void and give you way way more content than you could ever get from TV. Plus, we also want to reach those of you who are cord cutters. 
Um, I bet a large majority of you who listen to this podcast, because I get the demographics on this podcast, this podcast demographic is not C and D counties. It's mostly A and B counties and some, quite a few C counties. Uh, so that means it's from urban to the suburban rural spectrum of, of the audience. Uh, you're mostly male. Um, you're mostly between age 25 and 45. And we've done other surveys that tell me a lot of you are cord cutters that you don't probably catch us on TV. So for our partners, for the message we're trying to get out, that you can hunt public lands, that you can go self-guided and do all this, um, we got to have a presence on these other platforms. And, and Matthew's been pushing me down that path, and I'm so thankful for that because I get so busy trying to do the TV stuff that I just don't have time to pull away and do the things you're always telling me, Dad, you got to do this stuff. Yeah. I'm, I'm always telling him, hey, we need, need more content. Yeah. Do do more podcasts. Speaking of which, I think I'm trying to get him back to once a week instead of twice <laughs> or once every two weeks. Uh, but so. he he's cut me some slack because, um, well, we had this thing called tax season that always distracts me and takes some of my time being a CPA. Um, I have this weird liver condition, and I've had a two-month funk here where I've really been, my liver has really caused me fit, so... Uh, I apologize. That's not a good excuse, but we've, we, we've not been able to do weekly podcasts like I'd hope so. But if Matthew get, sends me the schedule and says, Hey, you're doing weekly podcasts, get ready. I'm probably going to be doing weekly podcasts. Yeah. So we've, I, one thing I'd really like to highlight is the additional value of the extra content that's on YouTube. Yeah. Uh, so Beyond the TV shows, which are mostly there for entertainment value, they tell a story and there's some tips and tricks. There's some educational info thrown in there. Um, a lot of what's on the YouTube channel is how you do things like tag applications. Here's how yep. you you find spots where elk might be, things like that, right? Yep. Yeah, it's we have the, the series out there we're doing with the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation called Elk Talk. And that walk through how to apply for tags in all these states. And then it's like, okay, if you didn't draw a tag, here's where you can still get tags. And right now, all the tag, it's, we're mid-May. All the tag drawings are coming out. And we'll get, we'll kind of wrap up podcasts with, with that. <laughs> um, but there's still opportunity for everybody to go elk hunting every year, whether you draw these limited entry tags or not. So we talk about that. And then we get into this segment of what I call the system, how to find elk on public land, because the number one reason people don't fill their tag is they struggle at finding elk on a consistent basis. And then we wrap up that elk talk series with a whole bunch of stuff about, you know, equipment, tactics, research, how, how we do this, how we do that. So there's all that. We've done some bag dumps. Isn't that what we're called? Yeah, we call yeah. them bag dumps, where so many of you email me and say, Randy, what's in your pack? What, what do you use for this? What do you use for that? So we did a video called the bag dump and you can go. To, we should have told them our YouTube channel is called Randy Newberg Hunter, yeah. right? Uh, shameless plug right now, <laughs> since this is my, my little baby that we're talking about here. Uh, we have social media presence on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. We have our own website called 
uh, randynewberghunter.com Randy, or randynewberg.com. Randy, sorry. New, yeah. Um, which includes the hunt talk forum. Right. And at the same time, there's also an email list that goes along with that. Right. So I'm going to encourage you to all check out any of these, which interest you. There's lots of content on YouTube. There's updates on Facebook, Instagram, hunt talk is a great place to have some discussions with fellow hunters across yeah. the United States and even outside of the United States also provides tons and tons of high quality information. Yeah. I, I'm going to so. stop you right there because hunt talk is, and I know other people who own forums that probably email me and say Newberg, shut up. But if you gave me, if you said, Randy, there's one elk in that Madison mountain range and we need to find it. There's about a dozen guys on Hunt Talk who I would put my money on any of them, that they would be the guy who would find it in that 3 million acres. They're just, the Hunt Talk crowd, they're all public land guys, self-guided, do-it-yourself dudes, and if you want to if you want to talk and hang out with guys who have it figured out about equipment, about tactics, about gear, strategies, they, they got it. They, they got it dialed in. I'm like, I feel like such a half-assed amateur when I'm in these discussions with some of these hunt talk guys, because I'm like a downstreamer compared to most of them. So I, if you go there, it's hunttalk.com. Um, and are we going to get into the big promo thing? Yeah, might might as well just talk about the big promo now while we're okay. on the topic. All right. So the reason that hunttalk.com plays into what we're going to talk about next is, again, this is Matthew's strategy about how we're going to build, how we're going to keep our TV audience there this fall, but yet we're going to convert them to digital followers. And so here's how it's going to work. You're going to... This is all going to be out on our website, the randynewberg.com website, uh, by the end of June. So those of you who watch our TV show know that every year we've been giving away a free hunt. Someone gets drawn for an elk hunt. And the that, that works okay, um, but it's kind of an all or nothing sort of thing. Uh, it doesn't doesn't allow a lot of people to participate. It's like one person gets the big hurrah. And so here's what we're going to do. We've got five platforms where we try to reach people besides TV. And these are all digital platforms that Matthew is managing or at least guiding me on. And you mentioned them. YouTube yep. channel, Randy Newberg Hunter. Yep. Facebook. Facebook is Randy Newberg Hunter. Instagram. Instagram is Randy Newberg Hunter. Uh, hunt talk, which right, as right. we mentioned hunt before, is just hunttalk.com. And then as part right. of signing up to hunt talk, you can sign up for the email list. Right. Or you can sign up for the email list of Randy Newberg at Randy So those are five platforms that we use to communicate with our audience strictly digitally. And so here's the gig. If you subscribe to any of those, for every one of those you subscribe to, your name gets in the hat for each platform you're subscribing to. So you could have your name in the hat five times if you subscribe to all five platforms. Am I, am I right on that? Yeah. 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 And so July through November, every one of our partners, whether they're partners on the TV show, partners in this podcast, or partners on the Hunt Talk website, 
every one of them are giving us monthly prizes to give away. So, and I'm, I'm not talking like, oh, you're going to get a bumper sticker or a t-shirt. These are significant prizes. And every month we're going to draw people, draw your name from wherever you're entered. So you might be in the July drawing five times if you subscribe to all five of our platforms. And we're going to draw a separate winner for every prize that's donated to the cause. We're going to do that in July. We're going to do that in August, September, October, November. And then comes December, the big uh, whatever you want to call it. We, in our, we used to do experiment with this out on Hunt Talk. We called it badass drawing. It was the badass drawing and sponsor spotlight is what the acronym we was we, it? I thought it was the, the badass year end right, something or other, right? right? But anyhow, we, we're kind of striking that up again this year. And what we're doing is for December, everybody who's subscribed to any of these platforms, so if you subscribe to all five, you're going to have your name in five times for the year end drawing. And we're drawing one name in December. And this person is going to get a prize package of gear. That's, I, I, I haven't even added it up yet. It's going to be a Howa Alpine mountain rifle, which right there's over a thousand bucks. It's going to be a Leupold VX6 scope, which right there's over fifteen hundred bucks. It's going to be a Mystery Ranch backpack. There's another six hundred bucks. Pair of Kinetrek boots, another four hundred bucks. A set of Sitka gear, over a thousand bucks. A package from Gerber, from Onyx Maps, from blah, 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 blah. <laughs> All of our partners, Orion Cooler. You're going to get one person in December is going to get drawn for, I mean, Christmas is going to look pretty pretty marginal compared to what that person's going to win. So, Are, are you going to call that person on Christmas and say, hey, look what you won? No, we're doing it. We're actually doing it. Uh, in in the first part of January we're running it through December so I I don't know it just seems like it we don't want to shortchange the the December folks who who get into it because we're still going to be and you, we're going to run a commercial in our TV show telling people about this um, but the whole idea is we want to reward the folks who are following us on our digital platforms we want to encourage them to follow us and those who are we want to make it worth your time. We can't promise you that you're all going to win. Um, but you get all of our content for free. You get all of our information, advice. <laughs> Maybe it's not good advice. It might be worth, <laughs> as they say, be careful with advice. Sometimes it's only worth what you paid for it. Um, so that's that's our strategy, isn't it, Matthew? Have, yeah. I, have I missed anything? Yeah. In addition to that, I've got some some other things that I'm trying to convince him to do here, like some live question and answer sessions that <laughs> I think would be great, but might be a, a struggle to do with our one megabit per second upload speed here at the house. A um, few other things, just trying to get a little more interaction, get a little more uh, information out there for people of varying skill levels and different backgrounds. Um, for example, one of the big demographics coming to hunting are people who didn't grow up hunting but are interested in it because of the food aspect and that's a demographic that is typically around my age is typically from a city or suburban area and 
is just not used to the the traditional kind of hunting culture that's out there. Yeah. Um, and so we'll see. I mean, it's always a struggle trying to get the right information out to a variety of people and not everything is going to be super right. relevant to everyone. Right. But. And, and that, that's the struggle is sometimes like I was at the backcountry hunter and angler thing in early April and I could not believe how many people came up to me and said, you know, I've never watched your TV show before but I've been watching your YouTube channel. Man, there's so much stuff there for a person like me. I I just got into hunting. It's all about the food. I'm blah, blah, blah. I mean, a lot of people. It struck me how many people are coming to hunting through the food aspect. And so some of the things I took as pretty basic, and I mean, let's, let's just think about it. You started shooting shotguns when you were like six years old. So you knew the difference between a shotgun and a rifle. You knew the difference between a shell and a bullet. And I'm oversimplifying here, but you think about how much we take for granted in the hunting culture and how hard it would be to step into that if you didn't have someone to show you the ropes. Just mm-hmm. just the the terminology, the jargon, the... the yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot there and trying to go up to some random person at the the corner bait shop isn't typically the the most enlightening experience if you're brand new to everything right and so my my point being is some of you are super experts at so much of this that you should probably be doing these videos and not me and you might see some of our content out there that's geared towards the person matthew just talked about but we're also going to have a a lot of content geared towards the advanced person, uh, the whoever it is at, at whatever level of hunting experience there is. So we're there is a challenge in trying to cover the whole gamut of of that what I'll call new consumer, new media consumer, the digital media consumer. I mean, you've you've definitely got some videos out there right now that are aimed at the more experienced people. Right. I mean, I don't know too many new hunters who are going to go try and mount their own scopes on their rifle when it comes straight out of the box. (laughs) So (laughs) that's that's one of the videos that you put up recently that I think would be really helpful for someone who's always taken their gun to a gunsmith and had them do that, for example. Yeah. Um, And so there's, there's going to be a variety of information out there and some of the things are going to be extremely useful, I think to a variety of different people. I hope so. I, are we going to be able to convince Lillian to be our our guinea pig? She's uh, <laughs> so little background here. Matthew's serious girlfriend of how long? Five years now. Uh, yeah. little over four. Oh, four years. Yeah. My my wife and I are, are always waiting for the phone call when they're telling us that they're going to get married because we we adore Lillian to no end. I mean, you you promised us money to elope, right? Twenty thousand bucks if you'll elope. <laughs> Steel steel stands. Mm-hmm. Your mom and I eloped, and we've been married twenty seven years, twenty eight years almost. So it it'll work. Plus, you'll be twenty thousand dollars richer. I I thought the marriage advice was supposed to wait until the end of the show. I actually I said we weren't doing marital advice on this one, but it looks no, like I, uh, I I you made, broke the rule. Okay. Anyhow, it, it's been interesting for me. Matthew's girlfriend Lillian is 
getting a PhD in a, one of the science fields. Uh, and she's extremely intelligent about a lot of this stuff. But she comes from a non-hunting family and has been immersed. It comes to Montana regularly. Uh, been immersed in the shooting and what we do, fishing and, and wild game and stuff. And so just, she's been a great sounding board for me. And so I often think of her, or at least her generation, her demographic, as a little bit of the target audience for this stuff we're talking about. And before coming out here, she'd never shot a gun. Right. Um, She'd never eaten venison or elk or anything. Right. Kind of of like me. I'd never ridden the subway or taken a cab in D.C. Right. It's You are a function and a product of your environment. Right. And so she's very down to earth in a lot of ways and was open to trying venison when she came out here one time. I think we gave her what? deer elk and bison at some point yeah. right and walleyes and walleyes <laughs> um and so she she was open to trying that and has stated in the past that she would be open to trying going whitetail hunting in virginia where she lives and i she hasn't made good on that yet but <laughs> part of that's me not wanting to pressure her too much All right and Oh, she's got a pretty heavy academic yeah. rigor I mean, going that's, on right now. That's what happens so. when you're in a PhD program, I yeah. think. But the point of that being is someday either her or a similar demographic we're going to have on the TV show. Yeah. I would almost like to have a podcast of two or three people of that demographic profile because I learn so much when I hang out with non-hunters or – and I'm not saying anti-hunters. I'm talking about people who are genuinely interested in their food source, where it comes from, its quality, its origin. And they're starting to look down this path of hunting as maybe a solution. And they don't just jump there right away. But those are really valuable discussions. Like we had Nicole on the podcast, uh, I don't know, four or five podcasts ago. Um, she works for meat eater and she talked about how before she started working for a company that produced hunting content, how she really didn't get the grip and grin idea that all of us in the hunting world, you know, we whip out our phone and showing our buddies the limited ducks hanging off the stump or, you know, the big smile with the big elk or whatever. And until Nicole really started and it was before the podcast, she was way uh way more reserved on the podcast than before we turned it on she said a lot of things that still strike me today and uh, so many of these people that are coming to hunting are giving me a wider view of of what the future of hunting should be or will be i guess just by its demographics the demographics of this country um been very helpful so i i want to get that was my whole purpose of interjecting Lillian here is that she represents that demographic that someday I'd like to, to get in, into the program. What, what would you think about doing a, an example video where you go maybe shoot a white tail doe, something mm-hmm. that's not necessarily regarded as a big trophy, right. for example, and going through the whole process of processing and then either storage preparation or food preparation. Right. Just yeah, I'd, the whole thing. I'd love to do that. Why don't I send the camera crew back with you and you and Lillian go do it? 
Um, <laughs> I mean, that would still require other, her other to than agree your, being right. on camera and hunting and right. all of the above. Right. No, I, I don't want to put anyone in the hot spot. Yeah. But uh, I, I just think that that kind of content is going to be very helpful to a digital audience. And if we in the hunting world want to be relevant, we better be paying attention to the changes that are going on demographically. I I feel like in general, the hunting kind of, I know people kind of hate this term, but the hunting community uh, has really been a, just an old boys club for the most part for a long time. Well, (laughs) it's not you thinking that look at it. Yeah. It's, it's mostly white male Christians. It's, and so now there's this new group that doesn't hold the same traditional political beliefs. Right. And so <laughs> it's a little hard for them to break in, mm-hmm. even though they're going to share a lot of the same kind of theories on, I want food that I know where it comes from. Yeah. I want it to be good quality. Like and they also agree with a lot of the conservation type right. mentality. Clean air, clean water, healthy lands. Yeah. Right. And so... There's enough of an overlap there that you, we, we really need to be welcome, welcoming these people into the fold. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times they're shunned away because maybe they vote on the other side of the political ticket than right. the traditional hunting block does. And that's something that probably needs to change if hunting is going to survive past one or two generations from now. Mm-hmm. No, you're exactly right, Matthew. What the face of hunting will look like 25 years from now is is so much different than what it is today just because of the demographic changes in the United States. And either the hunting world adapts to that in its message, in its image, in its actions, in its motives, or you don't. And like you said, when all of us old gray-haired guys die in 25 years, hunting as we know it today, kind of goes the same path. And that's one of the other things, or one of the other reasons why I'm really trying to push this digital platform is this demographic, the, what was the term the BHA guy used, the adult onset hunter? Yeah. Um, That demographic is technically a little young, or not technically, typically a little younger, Um, usually is a little more involved in the technological things like digital media. Right. And so it's a good way to really reach that group of person and talk to their media consumption habits and get them the information that they need. Um, I mean, I've tried to go on a number of the Department of Fish and Game websites and some of them are extremely difficult to navigate. It's a, it, that's a good point. I want to bring this up. I wish we would have recorded this. I was at an elk summit. Uh, I think it was May 3rd and 4th. The Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation brings in all of the state directors from the elk states. And Steve Ranella gave the morning presentation, and I started the afternoon presentation. And Steve made it a super good point. And he talked about the complexity of regulations. He said, you know what? I think you guys as directors need to go and take 12 test cases, sample people, have them try to buy a turkey tag from your agency without, and go out and kill a turkey 
without breaking one of your rules. And all the directors looked at each other like, holy cow, he's right. And I think Steve really hit a point there of, we have this world of technology. We have every, well, business and industry is trying to make it simpler and easier and communicate better, make it more user-friendly. Hunting regulations by their, by their enactment, but also the proclamations and the websites are, like you said, they're, as a general rule, not all, but as a general rule, are pretty bad. Yeah. Such that getting a new hunter involved by saying, hey, go read the website at State XYZ, they're probably going to just close it down. Yeah, they're, they're going to look at the 300-page rule book and say, oh, I don't know what's going on. It's right. not worth the effort. Right. Or they're not going to be able to find what they need on the website, which is why I think forums like Hunt Talk become a very valuable piece in the information equation of this because... These people go to a state website. It's like, man, this looks like some sort of hieroglyphs. And they still have the interest to hunt. And then they find forums like ours, like Hunt Talk. And they come there and they find a lot of accommodating members who are willing to help them down that path. Yeah. Can can I go off on a tangent here for a few minutes? Uh, tangents? Uh, podcasts and tangents are like All right. peanut butter and jelly. Um, so talking again about new people getting into hunting... Yeah, and talking about drawing tags, the uh-huh. the whole preference point system, where the longer you've put in, right, dictates whether or not you get the tag. Right. Um, in my opinion, this seems like a large government mandated pyramid scheme. <laughs> um, so you're in an MBA program right now. Is it when you guys are studying business history? Is would this be considered a Ponzi scheme? Or? Um. I, I haven't studied that specifically. I've mostly been in the operations side, but it it seems a little questionable at best. <laughs> um, from my understanding of the preference points, um, prefer- preference points being the ones where if you're at the top of the heap, you just get the tag. Right. right. Bonus points are like raffle tickets. The more you have, the better your chance, but no guarantee. Whereas right. a preference point is he or she with the most points gets the tag right and so in a lot of these states when did preference points tend to start being enacted Mm, in the late 80s colorado started their elk preference points and then other states picked it up mostly in the 90s there's still two states new mexico and idaho are the two western states well and alaska three western states that don't have any type of point system all the rest have some sort of elaborate scheme to help the old gray-haired farts like me have a better advantage to draw that extra tag before we die. Right. And so these states are going to have 20 to 30 years of this system in place. Mm-hmm. And these super premium hunts or the the super premium units are going to take 21 points to draw. Or more. But every year that number keeps climbing because you have people with you have yep. more people at 20 points than you had at 21, and you have more people at 19 than you had at 20, and there yep. aren't enough tags to make up for that difference. Exactly. And point, so, point creep, they call that. Yeah. And so I, I haven't run the numbers on this, but I have a feeling if I made a model of what it would take for a new person to try and draw one of these tags, mm-hmm. they would just never draw it in their lifetime. Right. 
Um, they they would view this as their donation to wildlife management. Right. <laughs> and so I think the system is kind of rigged against new hunters in more ways than one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we're really getting people into this, we might have to have a real hard look at the preference and bonus point system and say, is are we systematically ensuring that nobody ever wants to enter this activity ever again? Right. I, I think you're absolutely right, Matthew. And I, I sat on the Montana committee, I think it was in 98 when Montana put together a committee, me and I think 12 other people and a couple non-residents, a couple outfitters, we came up with Montana's bonus point system. And it was called the point system. We didn't know if it was going to be bonus or preference, what it was going to be. And I think at that time I was 35. And I was the youngest person on that committee by at least 10 years, maybe 15 years. And some of the things that I threw out there, I thought I was going to get beat up. I mean, these were really good guys. Don't get me wrong. They're, they're all, their heart's in the right place. But, you know, I advocated that moose, goat, and sheep, which are rare in any of the Western states, should be once in a lifetime. You draw, you're done. Because some states have it that way. Oh, my goodness. Some of these guys, they'd already drawn one or two moose or goat tags. And they're like, no, I want a third one. <laughs> and then I said, all right. You know, for moose, goat, and sheep in Montana, we have a seven-year wait. Other states have, every state has some way of handling this, either once in a lifetime or a longer wait list. And most of our hunts in Montana are general unit for elk and deer. And I suggested, well, maybe if you draw one of our special elk tags, one of our limited entry elk tags, you should be put on a five-year wait list or a seven-year wait list so that we can plow through the applicants and it doesn't you know you don't end up with people with 20 points still waiting to somehow get their number pulled oh mercy it is like <laughs> who who invited this newberg guy to this committee what a knucklehead point being they were all a bunch of old gray-haired boys worried about and and those listening to this podcast will rationalize an argument against what you said of how we might systematically be eliminating young hunters, they will rationalize it by, well, that's how it was when I came into the system. Or, well, I've paid my dues. You know, I, I get that to some degree. But, and it's getting now to where in some states, it's not just these premium tags that require a lot of points. Nevada, every tag is on a draw. Utah, most tags are on a draw. New Mexico, Arizona, every deer tag in Colorado. And a lot of these are taking more and more and more points, if you want to, you know, whether they're bonus or preference points, even for residents to draw those tags. So the opportunity to go and hunt big game in states that have that problem, it's, it, it has to be a factor for younger people. Um, according to most of what I've seen in my MBA so far, I'm pretty sure the advice that they would give is you just need to raise the price if that's the case. But, <laughs> but then, all right. And then some would say, well, then you're pricing people up. Right. And, and that's, so, that's also something that would di right. discriminate against the new hunters. Exactly. Because they're probably at a point in their life where they have less resources. Yeah. 
if you're younger. For example, um, if I wanted to uh, say I was a college student going to school in Virginia mm-hmm. or something like that, and I wanted to go hunt elk in Montana, that would cost me what? A grand yep. all told just from For the tag. applications yeah. and tags. Yeah, and close to that, 900 bucks, something like that. Yeah. And that's <laughs> not, not doable for a lot of people in, right. in that kind of situation. And so if you're pricing it to the point where no one can get into it until they're 45 and have stable income and have excess spending money, you're losing an awful lot of interest in the activity right? People in, have, in those years. Yeah, people have found other things to do that are within their budget or within their likelihood of achievement. Mm-hmm. It, you know, it, you're, you're probably not the example because, you know, in our house, hunting serious business. Um, my wife allowed me to start building this hunting slush fund way before the TV show started. So I've been applying in Western states since 1993 across the West. So I've got more points than. Yeah, I mean, I, you've burned a lot of them for I, the show. I have but... for the show. The <laughs> only person I know who has more points than me is Matthew. Because since he was 12, or in some states you even got to start putting in at age 10, I remember, you've been building points. So you're the exception. So you. You know, you're going to get a lot of great hunts once you get out of this whole right. school program. But, but that's not the norm. Right. I'm I'm not the, the new hunter that is going to try and get into this and realize that they're being locked out of some of the, the more popular units. Right. I'm the exact opposite. I'm from a family that's been deeply ingrained with this and is kind of paid into the system for the last right. 15, 20 years. Yeah. Do you think if you went to some of your peers and said, hey, let's start building points in Nevada, yeah, you got to, or Utah, or, or any state where just to build points, you got to buy a $150 license? No, that's that's a non-starter. Really? Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't know that many people in my current school system that actually go hunting, but I knew a fair number when I was working full-time in Pennsylvania and over there it's like, Oh, it's $150 for the application. Why, why don't I just go buy a tag over the counter and go shoot a whitetail in Pennsylvania Right. or things like that? Oh, I could apply for 10 years and I might never get it. Right. Um, I mean, even if I didn't already have a bunch of points, I would be optimizing. Okay. Where can I go that I would be able to have a reasonable chance to get something and go pretty much guaranteed? Mm-hmm. And I would be trying to maximize that kind of cost basis versus success versus what do I want to be doing versus right. time periods. And um, I think I would I would not be chasing any of the trophy units. Right. So some people would say, well, that's all right. If you aren't that dedicated, we, you probably shouldn't be involved. But that's if you if you have that kind of mentality with everyone, you're just gonna Pretty have soon this, no one's gonna be involved, right? You're gonna have the the super rich people who own 
hundreds of thousands of acres of land and they're going to be the only ones who actually go hunting or something like that. Right. Something where access to resources is going to determine who hunts. And in the United States, part of why hunting has enjoyed such remarkable uh, acceptance is it's always been an activity of the masses. So we could go on this topic for a long time and it's yep. it, it's a tangent from where we were but it's certainly not a tangent to things i've talked about on this podcast in the past i i worry about these elaborate schemes and if i totaled up your points across the west and my points across the west i bet you it'd be close to 300 points M- more than that it'd probably be close to 400 points 500 points across the west i would give up all of our points in all the states if they would all go to what New Mexico or Alaska or Idaho do. I, I mean, what's more fair than everybody having the same chance every year? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're going to have those people who complain like, oh, I've put in for 25 years right. and I haven't gotten anything. Oh, well, that's but... <laughs> That's called luck. Yeah. I mean, I've drawn, and this is beyond luck, I've drawn six limited entry bull elk tags in Montana in 11 years rifle bull elk tags that's ridiculously lucky and that committee if they would have forced us to you know if they would have followed my suggestion that you have to wait five years to draw one of those tags I wouldn't have drawn six of them in the last 11 (laughs) years but so some I think as a society we have a tendency to Look out for our own interests. Oh, for sure. (laughs) I mean, who's writing the rules? The old gray-haired guys like me. So who are the rules going to be swayed more towards? Old gray-haired guys like me. But one last piece on that. So we've kind of talked about the traveling non-resident hunter of what this cost would be and how that cost and the points to accumulate discourages them. I think even with residents, it can discourage them. Because I think it was last legislative session or the prior one, Montana said, oh, it's not bad enough that that we've got all these old guys with lots of points. Let's square the points. So they <laughs> passed a law to square the points. The, in the bonus point, you mean? In the so. bonus point system. So right. now I've got, let's say I've got 15 bonus points in Montana. Mm-hmm. You square that, that's 225. The 14-year-old, been in the system two years, he gets to square his two He gets four. I mean, how bad do we have to slant the table in favor of us old gray-haired farts before we're satisfied that... Mm -hmm. I mean, I I could get behind that a little more. Um, The the preference point thing that actually guarantees that the 14-year-old wouldn't get the tag, I can't get behind that. The squaring thing, yeah, it slants it, but it at least gives a... A chance to the other people. But couldn't we have just left it as, hey, you've got 15 points, Randy. The 14-year-old has two points. Yeah. Yeah. Did did we really have to, instead of make it a ratio of 15 to 2, make it a ratio of 225 to 4? Yeah. No, that, I mean, that's, I'm not going to argue with that. It's definitely much worse than the 15 to 2. Yeah. So on that, 
Can can uh, I add one other little thing to this? Quick? Yeah, for sure. Are we running out of time? Or there's no shortage All of time. Right. But people, they'll just hang up and cut us off if they don't want to listen anymore. So one of the the nice things that I noticed, uh, I'm in school in North Carolina right now, and North Carolina has this program where if you are attending an in-state university uh, full-time, you can get a resident hunting permit for, or you can get a non-resident permit for resident prices, which makes things extremely more accessible than they would be otherwise. And I'm not aware if other states like they do have quite a, a few those, other states but, have that, but um, they're, each of them have their different thresholds. Okay. Right. You had to have lived here six months. You had to change yeah. your driver's license. Yeah. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, North Carolina, as far as I understand it, just requires that you are uh, attending a university in the state. Mm-hmm. Um, I would like to see something a little more expansive. Like if you are attending any full-time university or any university full-time or college full-time, you can have resident prices anywhere, for Ooh. example. Uh-uh. Now, people, now you <laughs> now you got to... So, Matthew asked me, like, before before the podcast, he's like, how riled up can I get them? I, he waited until the end to throw one out there about yeah. getting people riled up because you, you just laid one out there that... Well, <laughs> if... Some guys probably drove in the ditch when they heard you yeah. say that. I mean... So my girlfriend's in Virginia, and if I wanted to go get a hunting tag or a hunting license in Virginia so I could go out with her and actually hunt, um, I believe I would have to pay full non-resident price, mm-hmm. which would be, I don't know, two $300 somewhere in there, uh-huh. which is not the worst, but it's also kind of burdensome being a full-time student and not (laughs) working full-time and having that, that income. And so I think if you could do that, that would really help. Um, It it would help college students. yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think a key group that you want to keep them in in hunting hunting if they grew up in it and you want to make sure that there aren't barriers to entry if they didn't grow up hunting yeah i'll I'll, you earlier you said i'll buy into part of what i said i'll buy into your idea that in within the state where you're going to school Mm. but i don't buy into the idea that everywhere no no why not because it's do you really need to have that benefit everywhere? I mean, the idea is, okay, you're making some investment in our state here. You're going to school here. You're, you know, it's convenient. It's, it's kind of, we're going to give you resident prices because if you want to go get some food, we don't want that to be a barrier. If you can afford to travel from North Carolina to Colorado to go hunting, mm-hmm. well, I don't think you need Colorado resident prices. But if I want to travel from north carolina to virginia to go hunting yeah like that's yeah you know a tank of gas to get there is 20 bucks that's not (laughs) right extravagant by any means right no i i we'll just disagree on that all right (laughs) Uh, you aren't voting for bernie are you Uh, i don't plan on it Oh, oh, I just pissed off a bunch of people one way or the other. Yeah. Uh, but, okay, let's, uh, let's wrap this up with right. a few things. Um, 
We were talking about tags, points, draw results, stuff like that. Wyoming's already issued their elk results. I didn't draw anything. You didn't draw anything. Arizona issued their elk and antelope draw results. Neither of us drew anything. This is the first time in the history of us doing this show that we've come out of Arizona and Wyoming without at least one elk tag for the TV show. So I was about ready to hit the panic button. And then myself and Corey Jacobson drew Gila archery tags in New Mexico. So that was cool. Um, I drew, well, I always get an over-the-counter Montana deer and elk tag. So that's that's a That's kind of cheating, right? Yeah, that's like a fallback (laughs) safety net. If I don't know if I could do a TV show like this if I didn't have the fallbacks of Montana, uh, just because I know I can get those tags. And then Utah, uh, when I got back from Alaska... Uh, I found out that I drew uh, uh, the one non-resident archery tag for a very good mule deer unit. So uh, the the reason of bringing that up is if you want to hunt the West, as much as Matthew made a very valid point about these elaborate point schemes and how if you're just getting into it, you might want to look at how this is impacting or how, what I guess what you're going to get as a bang for your buck. Is that that's right yeah i like i was saying i would i would be ignoring all these units that took 25 years to yeah. to get and i would be finding that one state where i have a 75 percent chance of drawing even if it's right sparse animal numbers and low success rates yeah. or whatever yeah but the and i bring this up just because now in may and june by, by the end of June, we've found out about most of these states. And some of you listening to this, are, I, I'm sure if you're not familiar with how these Western states work, go out to Hunt Talk. We have a separate forum called Tags and Applications. And then go watch our Elk Talk series on YouTube. We talk about all these states and how you do this. Because if you don't have a tag, you're not going hunting. It's just, it's that simple. So... At least you're not legally going hunting, and we we definitely cannot promote that. <laughs> no, it, yeah, it, 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 you're not going hunting. You're going poaching if you do. You're, it you're probably going to jail. Actually, hopefully, is what you're going yeah, to. hopefully you're going to jail if you do that. Um, the last thing I want to talk about, I've been reading a book lately. I'm about halfway through it, and it's a pretty uh, intense read. A lot of times, I have to go back and read the the paragraph or the page again, but it's called hunting and the American imagination. And it's about how hunting and our image as hunters was formed in America. So you take this group of Europeans who come to the United States, they interact with the indigenous people. You have all kinds of reasons about why people came to this country uh, religious freedoms, all kinds of other things. But history shows that there were some really interesting social norms back then that formed uh, our hunting tradition and in what we think of ourselves as hunters and, and how we we are viewed by others as hunters in this country. And so it's by Daniel Justin Herman. Um if you're really into history and hunting and culture and how cultures form and evolve, uh, 
specific to ours. I, I mean, I love American history and I love hunting history. So maybe that's why this book is so cool to me. But uh, the first half of it so far has just been, uh, yeah, gosh, it's been so informative. And I, I don't know Daniel Herman, uh, but boy, he did a good job on this. And, and uh, if any of you a lot of you email me and say, Randy, what have you been reading lately? Uh, and I read a lot of stuff, but it's only so often that I find something that's uh, really helpful to my understanding of of hunting and what I think is my responsibility of, of uh, being a media platform in the hunting world. So anyhow, I, I don't know, Daniel, I don't get any plug for his book, but... Uh, Hunting and the American Imagination is the name of that book. If if you get a chance and you want to read something uh, that that dives into this really deep, really uh, really heavy reading, uh, get it. It'll it'll occupy quite a few of your days. So, what do we got left, Matthew? Um, I think we just have a couple uh, quick topics from the Hunt Talk forum of question and answer type stuff here can, can we plow through them yeah i think so all right um, let her rip so let's start with the and matthew said these came from our hunt talk forum we have a forum section out there called the podcast questions comments ideas topics and so we just grabbed a few off there all right uh what would you use first on a grizzly bear bear spray or a gun not even a question bear spray Hey, the only in I'm terrible with a handgun, but I've had two really close grizzly encounters. And in both of them, if that bear had decided to come after me rather than run away from me or run off to the left or right, there is no way I could have got a handgun out in time. And even if I did, it would have been so chaotic and so fast that I don't... Uh, and that's just my anecdotal observations, but it's also a lot of research that says, you know what? The best defense you have is bear spray. And I, the only reason I'd carry a handgun is if the bear didn't kill me, I could finish myself off. <laughs> and I know some of you are going to complain or email me and say, that's BS, Randy. Well, the data shows otherwise. And if you come and hunt grizzly country, use bear spray. Do you even own a handgun right now? Uh, no, I don't. I know. <laughs> just because I'm that bad with them. I, I like shooting them, and I've got all kinds of companies offering to send them to me, but it's like, you know what? I got enough weight I'm carrying around with cameras and tripods and the batteries and everything else. I don't need any more weight. All right. Uh, next question. Do you yeah. think mom is ever going to be a, a guest <laughs> either on the TV show or the podcast? Oh, you know out on hunt talk a lot of you um when i'm on the road my wife kim they call her miss finn because on the podcast i'm known as big finn that, that started I'm on the forum you mean oh yeah i'm <laughs> yeah see it's already getting late on the forum on the hunt talk forum i go by the handle big finn i i've had that title forever um just because of my finnish heritage uh so they call her miss finn um but nobody could, I, I'm trying, I'm struggling to think of an analogy of anyone who's as modest and bashful as your mother, my wife. 
I, I don't have anything. <laughs> I, you, you can't. You don't have a comparative. Nope. Me either. So, to whoever asked this question, the answer is: you are not ever going to see my wife as a guest on the TV show on our YouTube channel, and you're probably never going to hear her as a guest on this podcast. It's just she is that humble, bashful, whatever you want to call it. Can Can we get her in some cooking videos? Maybe we tried, but she. She refused. All you got to see was her hands. It's like, <laughs> whatever. So, All right. Um, what do you do to stay in shape in the off season? Oh, um, you know, I, I'm one of those guys who I hate a gym. Uh, I would rather get put on the rack and tortured than to go to a gym. So I'm lucky I live next to a Forest Service trailhead here about a mile away. And I have yet to find anything that replicates elk hunting, like hiking the the Gallatin face up to the highlight divide and back. Um, it takes me about two, two and a half hours, and I can change the pace if I want more exercise. I can change the weight in my pack if I want more exercise. I just, I don't know. I drive a desk for a living. I'm a CPA in my other life, so I have to make it part of my day. I have to make it a calendar item on my schedule that okay from this hour of the day to that hour i'm going hiking and i've yet to find anything that replicates elk hunting as good as hiking all right uh follow up to that okay what do you do you have any special diets that you (laughs) use i know the dairy queen diet is very popular yeah uh, everyone knows randy's a big fan of dairy queen but that's probably not a good question for me to answer because i have a strange liver condition that if you go and look at season one of Fresh Tracks, the very first episode, we were in the Nevada Ruby Mountains, and my liver flared up really bad. And we try to edit that out most of the time. Those of you in the medical profession are probably saying, well, what condition does he have? I don't have a portal vein. Um, so if you go and Google the condition portal vein thrombosis, portal hypertension, uh, that's the main vein that goes into your liver carries about 70% of your blood into your liver. So my blood doesn't get circuit or doesn't get cleansed. Best analogy I can use is if you ran your car for a hundred thousand miles and only put about 30% of the oil through the oil filter, your car is not going to make it a hundred thousand miles. So I have this weird dietary restriction. So I, I'm not the right guy to answer that question other than, yeah, I do treat myself to a medium vanilla cone every night in the summer <laughs> all right uh moving on uh <laughs> shooting downhill and uphill how yep. do you adjust yeah it's uh well the easy way is i have a leupold uh rangefinder that already has it built in it's uh a tbr it gives your true ballistic range in other words those of you who study fit physics, you know that your line of sight, the hypotenuse of the triangle, is always longer than the horizontal distance over which gravity works on your bullet. So if you're shooting at a steep uphill angle or a steep downhill angle, you have to hold low from what your line of sight distance would be. In other words, if your line of sight, the hypotenuse of the triangle, would be 300 yards, the distance over which gravity works on your bullet is not the true 300 yards, it's the leg of the triangle. And so... If you held for 300, you'd end up hitting high. 
So. All right. Um, have I, always, you, I always hold low, uphill or downhill. Or or use a Leupold that, true ballistic range. Right. You get a, get the Leupold 1200 TBR rangefinder, and that will solve all your problems. All right. Um, have you ever considered hunting somewhere else besides the United States or North America? Um, I have. Uh, I want to go to New Zealand. I we got a bunch of Kiwis out on the Hunt Talk website who have informed me that there is a lot of public land in New Zealand. So I want to go do that because it would be like what we do. Uh, the and I I people often ask me, "You want to go to Africa?" And and it's nothing against Africa. It's just there's so much that intrigues me about North America and other places. Africa has not yet made it up that far. Excuse me, that far up my priority list. So, um, being of Scandinavian heritage, my dad's side being Finn and Swede, my mom's side having quite a bit of Norwegian in it, I really would love to go to Scandinavia hunting. Um, so, that's, I would say if I ever leave this continent for my hunting, it's going to be Scandinavia. All right. Well, I think that pretty much wraps up the, the quick Q&A from Hunt Talk. Okay. Anything else before we sign off for the night? Uh, you got any parting thoughts? I always let the guests have the parting thought. Um, I, I think that as a general hunting group, we need to do a lot more to figure out what's preventing new hunters from entering, mm-hmm. whether that's finding places to hunt, whether that's sifting through regulations, getting people through gun safety, anything like that. Um, there's more interest than I think most people realize of yeah. people who haven't hunted traditionally trying to get into it. And I think we're doing a very poor job of making it accessible to them. Yeah. I, I don't disagree with that at all. Um, you mentioned one thing about places to hunt. I'm going to wrap this up with those of you who follow all of my Facebook, other things, you know, I'm a huge advocate for public lands. We just started Yesterday, we launched a video on our YouTube channel called Stealing the Public Lands. And we're doing a whole series because there's this myth out there that somehow selling the public lands or transferring these public lands that are currently BLM and Forest Service lands, that somehow transferring those to the Western State Land Boards would be a good idea. That is one of the dumbest ideas that's ever been concocted if you're a hunter. It is an anti-hunting anti-american idea if ever there was one and some of you have argued that fact with me on facebook or elsewhere um and so i've went and done i think we've got four, 13 or 14 videos that will be rolling out in the next few months and it's all the facts these are citations these are screenshots from all the pages this is not randy newberg making this up this is all fact history and everything else and when it's all done you're going to realize that this whole smokescreen about transferring to the states is nothing but an excuse for the fringe operators to not in Congress to not have to do their job. Everything we're pissed off about when it comes to public land management in the West, in this country, could be fixed by Congress, but they're too spineless to do it. So they come up with these jackass ideas that, oh, let's sell these lands to our buddies or let's transfer them to the states because the states are really good at selling these lands to our buddies. So I'm going to leave you with, I hope you'll go out to our YouTube channel 
subscribe to that channel. It's free. Um, and you will follow this uh, public land, state transfer, uh, sale of the public lands, whatever you want to call it, that you'll follow that video series. So anyhow, we've kept you guys for two hours. Holy cow. Man, uh, thanks for giving us that much time on your birthday, Matthew. Yeah, no problem. It. Enjoyed it. Yeah. And uh, thank all of you for listening. And uh, I hope your mailbox gets stuffed full of tags in the next few weeks, in the next month. And I'm going to try adhere to Matthew's request and try to get these back on a weekly basis. So thanks for listening.